Really good to see you this morning. Um, I only realized when I started preparing this sermon, it's, it's been a few weeks since I've preached. That's actually the beginning. Of, could, you know, blanket. Go back to the beginning, please. Thank you. Um, so yeah, feel a bit out of practice, <laughs> but it's, it's good to be back. It's really good to be back. Um, we are really moved by what God is doing at the moment in Skipton. And uh, the word that was shared about the fact that, that God is moving and we're tapping into something is clearly evident. Every week on Saturdays when we go out in the town, we're seeing more and more conversations, people recognizing this question, this banner, this presence, and they're asking, do you know him? So we're continuing our series um, alongside other churches in the town. Every church is looking at Jesus, the revolutionary, today. And uh, <clears throat> I had Lisa's notes from last time. And if you've been watching on, online, on the YouTube channel or the website, Lisa did an intro to um, Jesus the Revolutionary. And I just thought, I'm just going to stick that up on the screen <laughs> and play it over a few times because it was really good. Um, but apparently you're not allowed to do that. So we'll move on. So Jesus the Revolutionary. Now, Lisa showed these in last time, these kind of um, pictures, these posters that are now a few years old, they've been out a little while, depicting Jesus as this revolutionary, um, the kind of Che Guevara freedom fighter kind of thing. And, and maybe we've got a little bit used to it, but I'm asking this question, was Jesus a revolutionary? Was he a revolutionary? Well, we kind of jump up and say, yes, he was. Well, let's have a look, shall we? Because I think that Jesus actually was, and bear with me in this, slippery, a failure and guilty. I promise you, it's going to go somewhere, all right? <laughs> Hang on in. I know I haven't been here for a while, but Jesus, at least get off the stage now. <laughs> Jesus was slippery, he was a failure, and he was guilty. Don't walk out just yet, please. Let's move on. Whenever I was a young lad, um, I used to play a lot of rugby. And I used to love it whenever I played for my, rugby, my school team in the morning and then in the afternoon. Anyone who's done the same thing who played rugby, the feeling of lying, battered and bruised on the sofa watching the Six Nations. There's nothing quite like it. It's brilliant. Um, but what I used to do is I used to pray before I played that my team would win. Okay? I used to pray in the afternoon that Ireland would win. If you watched rugby in the 80s and then early 90s, you'll know my prayers were not answered <laughs> for either of the games. We were not the best rugby team <laughs> in, in school's rugby. Um, so I could have had a crisis of faith. You know, I prayed to God and he did not answer my prayers. Or, and I realized this, there might have been someone on the other team praying to God that their team would win. <laughs> So it made me think, whose side is Jesus actually on? Is he on my side or is he on the other team's side? And we'll leave that there. It's all kind of trivial until we're starting to talk about Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. It's all joking until we start talking about pro-life or pro-choice, guns or no guns. Whenever I was growing up, when we were talking about Protestant or Catholic, which side is Jesus on? We used to be sent out... Um, by, I was at a Protestant grammar school I went to, and you know, we used to play some schools that were across from the other side, that's how we used to say it. And our coaches, ever, the, uh, ever wanting to encourage 
cross-community relations would go, boys, go out there for God and Ulster. I don't think his degree was in theology, put it that way. But who would Jesus vote for? Because during Brexit, during uh, the elections, both in America and over here, there were a lot of people saying Jesus would definitely vote for this party. He would definitely vote for this party. Who would Jesus um, vote for? Which side would he be on? Choosing or saying that Jesus is on your side and even coming up with proof texts to prove it is an incredibly hazardous occupation. It has led to things like a small part of history called the Crusades. You might have heard of them. Holy wars. People in the name of Jesus saying that people of a certain color shouldn't have rights in South Africa. People saying that Jews in Germany, according to Scripture, shouldn't be given rights and should be persecuted. Be careful when we say Jesus is on our side. And those familiar images, the kind of striking of Jesus, the freedom fighter revolutionary. It seems that Jesus' agenda could be seen as a kind of liberal Che Guevara, power to the people kind of thing. But the thing is, is he speaking about spiritual matters or about material matters? Because there are a lot of people who say, yes, of course, he's speaking about culture, and we should free culture. And other people saying, actually, it's about something spiritual, and Jesus should just talk about spiritual things. He only has a voice in the spiritual realm. That's a very Greek way of thinking, which is a divide between sacred and secular. In Jesus' thinking, in Hebrew thinking, everything is spiritual. Not just religion, but politics. Geopolitical things. Everything God has a voice on and wants to be heard about it. So it's hard to say whether Jesus would vote one way or another because, as I said earlier, Jesus is slippery. You can't, so to speak, box him in and say he would be like this, he would be like this, he would be like this. There are particularly four areas, revolutionary areas, that we would think about um, regarding revolution, and they were really, em- really prominent in Jesus' day. And we're going to look very briefly at, at these four areas and just see how much of a revolutionary was Jesus, so to speak. There were four areas. There was the religious, there was the political, there was the social and the economic areas that Jesus spoke into in first century Palestine. We have to be careful, as I said, not to cast Jesus in our mold. So let's have a look at the religious, uh, revolutionary Jesus. So what did Jesus do that was so revolutionary? Well, he, he, he changed the teachings. He said, you've heard it said this, I say this. He was highly critical of the religious establishment. In fact, some of his most severe words and downright brilliant insults were directed at the religious establishment, the church of its day. He would go around and he would proclaim forgiveness of sins and say that he would forgive people and heal people. He was downright saying something which was blasphemous. And he was accepting of, of, of sinners. He was accepting of people who were considered the Dinanites, those who'd, who'd messed up. So all, all in all, he sounds like this good, freedom-fighting, woolly kind of liberal Che Guevara. But let's be careful because actually... It wasn't just that anything goes, Jesus, because he had the highest moral standards. He told someone, go away and sin no more on multiple occasions. He said, well, you've heard it said, don't 
don't kill. I say, don't even hit. He said, if your righteousness isn't as good as even the Pharisees, then, you know, what's the point? He was raising a bar. In fact, he said, well, here's the, here's the, the thing. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how can we accuse Jesus of being some kind of soft touch when it comes to kind of moral issues religiously? So he had high standards and he had high acceptance of people. So we can't really pin him down there. Let's move on. We go into political stuff. Well, triumphal entry is one that we'll be thinking about in a few weeks' time when we celebrate Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, essentially poking fun at the Romans who would celebrate their triumphs by the general of a victorious army riding into the city on a big white charger with his army behind him and the vanquished behind him as well. And Jesus comes in on a donkey. And according to Zechariah, the prophet, he says that your king is going to be riding in to Jerusalem, humble and riding on a donkey. Sounds pretty political to me. He talked about the kingdom of God coming to earth. He had a zealot as one of his uh, compatriots. In fact, there's one particular theologian, a writer, who's written a book called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And he says the only two things you know about Jesus is that he was um, a revolutionary Palestinian Jew and that he was killed. I disagree with that, but that's what his view is. Jesus was just a zealot. He was proclaimed to be the Messiah. So therefore, politically, he must have been some kind of revolutionary. However, he rarely talked about Rome. Rome was in charge of Israel. Israel had been under the cosh for centuries from one superpower after another, and now Rome was in charge. Jesus barely spoke about Rome, and when he did, what he said was pay taxes to Caesar. Whose face is on, on these coins? Caesar, pay them back to Caesar. He even, um, he even praised a Roman centurion for his faith and said it's better than some of the faith in Israel. And the majority of his criticism was for the ruling classes of Israel, not of Rome. So was he a political revolutionary? Not maybe compared to some others. Well, let's move on to social. Well, that's a bit more grounded, isn't it? Because he had lots of mates, and his mates were the disciples, and they were absolute dropouts, weren't they? They were like, you know, half a brain cell rubbed between each other. They, they kept on putting their foots in it, foots in it, their feet in it. As well as those um, rough, mixed crew of disciples, he hung out with those in society that were not particularly well-valued, with prostitutes, with zealots, with tax collectors, with women, with ill people, poor people, with foreigners. And we reel off this list, and we're so familiar with Jesus being this nice guy that we lose the fact that in his time and in his day, what he was doing was downright wrong. It was wrong to hang out with these people, and yet he did it. But he didn't just have friends who were poor or ill or prostitutes. Some of his friends were quite rich. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha probably were fairly well off. They were able to hold dinner parties in their home. They were able to sponsor and support Jesus. Even after Lazarus died, they were looking after the home. What about Simon the Pharisee? Jesus was a guest of honor at loads of big dinner parties. Loads of cocktail things where, you know, the ambassador would come out with the Ferrero Rocher, that kind of dinner party. Jesus was invited to. He had friends. Zacchaeus was one of his mates, and he was worth a bob or two. He was, he was in that kind of cast in one particular area. 
the Pharisees, tax collectors. What about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? They would have had a bit of money. Joseph had his own tomb. That was rich. So Jesus was friend of the poor and friend of the rich. So can we nail him down to be one of these Che Guevara types? He welcomed those on the outside whilst befriending those on the inside of society and challenged them to be more welcoming. So we've done religious, we've done political, we've done uh, social, but economic. Well, economic, we're told he had no property of his own, apart from the kind of linen tunic, that was all he had at this crucifixion. He suggested to one guy that he needed to give all he had to the poor. He said the rich would find it hard to get into heaven. As I said, he had rich friends and sponsors. But then he also said that you'll always have the poor with you. He also accepted extravagant gifts that really could have been used much more, uh, much more generously and elsewhere. And he told people not to get worried about material things. That doesn't sound like a good economic policy, does it? So is Jesus the revolutionary that we think he is? Well, in many, many ways, he absolutely was. As I said, loads of those ways that he was a friend to the outcast, that he challenged the religious ruling classes, that he said that he was a king, that he said about the value of money. He was absolutely revolutionary. I've been reading Matthew's gospel recently, and one of the things that comes out, especially in the early chapters, is that Jesus had an authority which attracted people. They said, you speak with authority, not like the other people that we listen to. He had something about him. He spoke with an authority, a realism, a sincerity, a freshness that people flocked to. They all felt hopeful, regardless of what background they belonged to. But we sell Jesus really short if we leave him here as just a social and political, religious and economic revolutionary. Because as revolutionaries go, Jesus was a bit of a failure. As I said earlier, he's a bit slippery and he's a bit of a failure. Because his revolution didn't kick off the way that people expected it to. There were a lot of other revolutionaries in that day and time. There were three others. One guy was a guy called, a guy called Judah Maccabeus, called Judah the Hammer. Now that's got a good nickname, isn't it? And this is around 160 BC when Israel was being um, ruled by um, a group called the, the Ptolemies. And, uh, and Judah led Israel and overtook the temple and took Jerusalem. And the Jewish festival of Hanukkah is celebrates and remembers that. And he had independence for a little while until he was killed. So it ended. But he had a good run. And then in AD 60s, AD 66 towards AD 70, a guy called Simon Bargiora, he was leading a bit of a rebellion, a bit of a revolution against Rome, and it seemed to be going really well until the emperor went, nah, and slammed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in AD 70, the thing that shook um, Israel to its core. And then about uh, 50 or so years later, by a guy called Simon Bar Kokhba, was another revolutionary who actually was pretty successful for a few years. He kicked out the Roman overlords. He established Israel. He was celebrated as the Messiah, the king. He even had his own coins minted. He had a good run of it. But eventually it died as well. But these guys, at least they did something. Jesus was just nailed to a cross. So as a revolutionary is concerned, he was a bit of a failure. 
But I think there was a different revolution that was going on. The real revolution that nobody realized was happening. How many times have we read about the disciples pulling out swords going, we're ready to fight now. And Jesus going, no, that's not right. (laughs) No. There's a real revolution that was going on. And that's why we read this passage. I could have chosen so many passages. Um, So many times I vacillated between passages that highlighted Jesus as a revolutionary. And I realized actually all four Gospels, you could take anything from those four Gospels and you see Jesus' extraordinary out of stepness with society, his revolutionary ways. But I thought about this particular passage, John chapter 18, that Phil read to us a bit earlier on. Jesus and Pilate. This is a clash of kingdoms here. The kingdom of Rome, the kingdom of the world, facing off against the kingdom of God. And so he says, so are you a king? And Jesus' response is here. My kingdom is not of this world. I used to think this was a geographical statement. (laughs) So Jesus' kingdom is not here, but it will arrive sometime on like a big floaty cloud. That's kind of what I thought. It's it's heaven over there. That's where Jesus' kingdom is. And so he'll come here and he'll make it all nice. You read a bit further on, you realize he's talking about something else. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom is is not how you do kingdom, the entirety of the earth. How you do empire and kingdom and leading and power is completely different. My kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. If my kingdom was like your kingdom, yeah, my followers would pull up swords and start striking people and killing people. And that is the way of the world, but it's not the way of my kingdom. My kingdom is from a different place. Revolutions throughout the entirety of history, are always about one thing, and one thing only. Every single revolution, power. Every revolution is about power. Who has it? How is it used? Who benefits? And who suffers? Those are the questions about power that fuel revolutions. I did um, one of those Wikipedia searches about revolutions, and uh, That's just the contents page. There are hundreds of revolutions and rebellions. I tried to put it on a PowerPoint slide. PowerPoint just went no and just collapsed. There are hundreds of revolutions from BC right up to modern day where there are a number of revolutions happening at this present time. Now, if you believe in social and human progress, which is what we're meant to believe in a progressivism, we're all getting better. Hundreds of revolutions over thousands of years tells me that we're not getting better on our own. I think revolution is an apt name because it reminds me of a merry-go-round. The same thing happens again and again and again. It keeps reoccurring because we as people, as humans, are pretty rubbish with power. Notice I'm saying power and not the Northern Irish power. (laughs) We are pretty rubbish with power. Perhaps you you know that that experience. You've been in a job with someone for maybe five or so years. You know each other really well. Your colleagues do the same kind of job. And then they get promoted. And they become a boss. And they end up going to different meetings. And they get different privileges. They get a bit nicer car. And within a matter of weeks, you'll be turning to your colleague going, 
gone to his head, you know. <laughs> that power's gone to his head. He's not like he used to be. Or perhaps it's a bit more, uh, you know, civilized. And you read um, Orwell, who says that power corrupts and all power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Or maybe a bit more classic in either the book or the movie of Lord of the Rings, where the great ring of power, and, and it's a cracking scene where essentially they say, don't give it to the humans because they're rubbish with it. <laughs> give it to a hobbit. <laughs> At least he's trustworthy because humans want power. If you think that you're not susceptible to power, think about the last time you won an argument and how you felt. Because <laughs> that's another typical thing about power. Think about how you like to do things your way, your habits, your manner, your ways of doing things. We accrue power personally. It's kind of human nature. Many revolutions are bloody and violent affairs, often in response to oppression or the abuse of power. But so often in the history of the world, we see that people who were once freedom fighters, once they've got a taste of power, after a little while become fighters against freedom. We just need to see the stories that have come out of South Africa and Zimbabwe. And places, even, even things like the French Revolution, where people who were power to the people get into power, and then they start abusing that power. And as I said, become fighters against freedom as opposed to fighters for freedom. We have a tendency of gobbling up power and gripping onto it. So, is Jesus... A revolutionary against that. Well, we definitely know that he's slippery to define. We can't put him in any particular camp. Um, he's a failure of a traditional revolutionary because he didn't fight in that sense and didn't have a bloody coup and he didn't end up sitting on a throne and ruling Israel for a while, you know? But he was guilty of being a revolutionary. This is a piece of wood inside a glass case inside a church in Rome called Santa Croce. And depending on whether you believe it or not, this is considered by many people to be the actual sign which hung above Jesus' head at the cross. It's called the titula. It would have looked maybe something a bit more like this. It would have had it in Hebrew. It would have had it in Greek and in Latin. Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum. I won't say the other ones because I don't speak them. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth, king of the Jews. We read about it in John that that's what the charge was above Jesus' head. It wasn't just Jesus. They would have all had charges above their head. And the thing about this is Jesus was crucified. That tells us something loud and clear. It wasn't that he was annoyance. It wasn't that he you know, said a few blasphemous things. He was executed as a political criminal, as a treasonous, seditious terrorist, I suppose. Because that's what crucifixion was done. That's what it was done to. So even the method of Jesus' death tells us that he was guilty as charged. He was guilty of being the king of the Jews. He was guilty of starting a revolution, just not the one that people thought he was. He started something else. Was Jesus a revolutionary? I'm going to say yes, but most emphatically no. Because I think we're selling Jesus short to call him a revolutionary. Jesus was more than a revolutionary. He was a paradigm shifter. Now, this is not Phil trying to impress you with a fancy word, I promise. There is a difference between revolution 
and paradigm shifting. A paradigm is a way of thinking about the world, a way of processing the world, an operating system. They have protocols and ways of doing things. It's a scientific term that you can't operate outside these parameters. Jesus did. That's why it's more than a revolution of these parameters, this paradigm. It's more than a rehash of the old thing. Jesus is doing something completely new, completely different. He is paradigm shifting. He's fighting against He's not fighting against Rome per se. He's not fighting against the Jewish authorities. He's fighting a different opponent in a different war with different weapons and different tactics. A number of years ago, um, one Christmas, I was playing a board game. I think it might have been like checkers or something with, um, with Owen, one of my youngest, or my youngest. He was, he was playing, and we were, we were playing all these different things, and I made these moves, and then he just took his thing and just went, I win. And I went, son, okay, let me say it. That's not how you play the game. He said, Daddy, that's how I play the game. <laughs> so all the disciples, all the Jesus followers, even the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes, the Romans, they all said, Jesus, this is how you play the game, but you're not fitting the game. And Jesus is saying, ah, I'm playing a different game by a different set of rules. This is the way I'm playing it. And the clash, I don't know where this quote comes from. It's either Jimi Hendrix or Mahatma Gandhi. You take your pick. It says, the love of power against the power of love. Because that's the battlefield that Jesus does a paradigm shift in. And has a paradigm shift within our hearts as well as humanity. Is it a love of power or is it the power of love? Please don't break into a song. And this is the battleground that Jesus fought. Jesus fought these battlegrounds throughout his life. Jesus' battlefields, I'm going to quickly whip through a few of these. The temptations. What were the temptations about? Was it just about whether Jesus had bread or not? No, it was about are you going to use your power to establish your priorities, your throne? Are you going to use it for yourself? Satan says, you know, I'll give you all the power in the world because basically it belongs to me, but you have to bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, I won't. And then a little bit later on, he's fed 5,000 people. And it says in John chapter 6 that Jesus, after feeding 5,000 people, runs away and hides. Why? Because the crowd were about to make him king by force. That is not Jesus' kingdom. It's a different rules. Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just told his disciples after they've said, yes, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, brilliant, well done, you got it right. And then he said, by the way, what that means is I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be tortured and beaten, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter goes, no, you're not. <laughs> and Jesus says, you don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of humanity. Because going and conquering Jerusalem would have been the human way of achieving kingdom. Jesus said it's a different way. Then we see in Gethsemane, in that torture, torturous garden scene where Jesus says, if possible, take this cup away from me. And then he says, but not my will, your will be done. And then even at the cross, the epicenter of this paradigm shift, Jesus is there, exposed to all elements, exposed to all that evil and death and sin can throw at him. 
Uh, writers often write about the fact that this is the, the groundswell of evil pouring out on top of Jesus. And what are some of the comments from the bystanders? Come on off that cross. Come on. Come on down. Show us your power. Call Elijah. Call those 70 legions of angels and come and establish your kingdom. And there on the cross, Jesus instead says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're talking about. These are Jesus' battlefields. And the battlefield is all about power. The love and grasping of power or the power and release of love. So Jesus was slippery. You can't kind of categorize him into he's for this and he's for that. He's not in this and he's in my team. He's a bit of a failure as regards to a revolutionary's concern because he didn't establish that kind of there and then kingdom. And he was guilty as charged because he was starting something new. But as ever, just not as expected. I want to encourage you. Um, I could have just sat here and read this book to you. It's called The Day the Revolution Began by, by Tom Wright. Um, it is big, thick, it's quite dense, but it's worth working through. And at the end, his basic thesis is that, that um, we often think about um, Easter Day as the day of the new beginning, but actually the cross was the epicenter of this new beginning. And he said, with the cross, a new sort of power will be let loose upon the world. And it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. This is the heart of the revolution, the epicenter of this cosmos quake, not even an earthquake. Reality was reformed as Jesus died on that cross. So Jesus not just turns the world upside down, he completely reinvents the world in a way. Jesus wins by losing. He gains by giving. He rules by serving, and he lives by dying. We turn to the familiar words, if you want to, in Philippians chapter 2, the very familiar words. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He had all the power of the universe that created the universe, created reality at his fingertips, and he didn't grasp it for himself. The early church got that. Unfortunately, some of the older churches around Constantine didn't. Whenever they saw a cross and they said, by this sign, conquer. Wrong way of conquering. It's about self-giving love. Defeating the powers. Colossians chapter 2 says, Jesus on the cross made an open display, an open spectacle of the powers and authorities and defeated them by the cross. How did he defeat them? Because he didn't play their game. And who are these idols? Who are these idols? These are the old idols. Mammon, Aphrodite, and Mars. You think those gods are dead? We just call them money, sex, and power now. But it's Mammon, it's Aphrodite, and it's Mars. It's easy to see old empires, isn't it? It's easy to see old ideologies and idolatries. What about today's idolatries and today's 
ideologies and tomorrows that we need to be proclaiming Jesus' way over. When Jesus set off on his entire ministry, he was in Nazareth. And he said, he read from the prophet Isaiah. And he said this, my job, my manifesto, my aim is this, to preach good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we hear that and we think of the poor wretched soul who's sitting in the gutter and we don't realize he's talking about us. He is here to proclaim freedom for us, but we're not prisoners. Yes, we are. Whenever we release our freedom to mammon, to Aphrodite, to Mars, to the pursuit of financial security and benefit over and above other people. Whenever we are mastered by our urges as opposed to controlling them, whenever we don't honor the commitment of a marriage or celibacy, but we say anything goes because it demeans a human spirit. When we talk about power and self, and self-fulfillment and self-promotion, and when we we realize power is often used to, to kind of push yourself forward. Power was never meant as a reward. It was always meant as a tool to be used. We've turned it into a reward. You'll achieve power, then you can get what you want. We've turned sex into something, not beautiful gift. We've turned it into a, a hobby. And we've turned money into a God that we worship and pursue even as the church. So what have we got to do? What is this revolution, this paradigm shift about? Well, on this territory of money, sex, power, whatever, we need to say three simple words that put people to death. And there's three simple words of this. Jesus is Lord. That was a treasonous statement in the early church because Caesar was Lord. He was Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And to say anyone else was, was treason. But the church said, we're, we're loud and proud about the fact Jesus is Lord. We will live that Jesus is Lord. The revolution that Jesus initiated, the paradigm shift, was about the human heart. And it was about the heart of humanity. The gospel itself is a redefinition of power. The cross is a symbol of what power was meant to be like. It was always meant to be given away. The power of love, not the love of power. It shows what true power is, of which all earthly powers are either an imitation or a corrupt parody. Power was a tool given to us by God. Power and privilege. Power to serve and the privilege to serve one another. And so, with Jesus, can I encourage us to pray and then act those most rebellious words that he asked us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom, kingship, rule, reign, paradigm come. And your will be done on earth. Amen.